Today, we want to continue our series of sermons for Advent, for the weeks leading up to Christmas. We're looking at this Advent, some of the last chapters in the Bible, to remind ourselves that God's story ends in hope, with a capital H. From the earliest days of the Christian faith, one of the overarching points of Advent has been that we celebrate Jesus' coming to remind us that He is coming again. We celebrate Jesus' coming to remind us that He is coming again. And after a year like 2020, it seems like the right year to flip to the end of the book and find some reassurance. Some reassurance that, that it's worth it. That we should carry on. When Jesus came the first time as fully God and fully human on a rescue mission for you and me, when Jesus came the first time, He came at an unexpected time. It seemed like He'd waited a long time, but He came at just the right time. And for 2,000 years, Christians have been waiting for the second coming of Jesus. It seems like he's waiting a long time. But at just the right time, he's going to come. He's going to return. And the second time, we're told, he's going to come. Jesus will come to judge the living and the dead and to usher in the life everlasting. Jesus will come to judge the living and the dead and to usher in the life everlasting. Last week, we talked about and looked at Jesus judging the living and the dead. In case you missed it, by which I mean the sermon, not the judgment. In case you missed it, uh, the sermon is online. Now some of y'all are thinking, whew, I'm glad I missed last Sunday. Don't worry, I'm about to summarize it. In Revelation chapter 20, there is a great and glowing throne. And the great and glowing throne makes everything else grow dim. From that throne, God calls all people to account for our lives. You and I are called to account for what we have done in our lives and what we have done with Jesus Christ. We're called to account for what we've done in our lives and what we've done with Jesus the Christ. And books are opened, and everything starts coming out, both the good and the bad. Nothing was truly done in secret. But as we are accounting for our lives, we are also able to watch relationships be set right. We are also able to see wrongs be righted. And we will reach a moment in the light of the great and glorious throne where we realize at last there is justice. And then the question turns to what we've done with Jesus the Christ. Jesus opens up the book of life, the Lamb's book of life, and those whose names are found in the Lamb's book of life are invited, ushered into the life everlasting. And so we ended last week talking about how we don't want to walk into that moment unprepared. And in fact, we want people of this world, people we love, to be prepared to meet our maker. And thus, out of last week, we recommitted ourselves to the importance of spreading the hope of Jesus, spreading the hope to at least one more person, the hope that we have found that God has placed in each of our lives. Jesus came the first time to prepare us to meet God. So, in fact, to pave our way back to God so that we could have a reconciled relationship with God. What we've seen Gabe stand up here and testify to today, that because of Jesus, we don't have to live alienated from God. We can live reunited in a relationship with God. That's great news. And we don't want to keep it to ourselves. Now, we don't want to be jerks about it. And we don't want to keep it to ourselves. And so where we ended last week was this, that as a follower of Jesus, or if today or in the future you become a follower of Jesus, as a follower of Jesus, in my victories and in my suffering, I remind myself my name is written in the Lamb's book of life. 
As a follower of Jesus, in my victories and in my suffering, I remind myself, my name is written in the Lamb's book of life. So at this point in these chapters that Jen read for us earlier, there's the great and glowing throne and all those whose names are written in the book of life standing around it. And then the light from the throne starts to fan out and light up the world that surrounds it. And to our surprise, it's not the same world that grew dim. In John's vision, here's what John, the writer of Revelation, this early follower of Jesus, here's what John saw as the light from the throne lit up his surroundings. Chapter 21, verse 1. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. So the light from the throne reveals a new heaven, meaning a new sky. Imagine how blue it will be. The light reveals a new earth. Imagine the smell of blooming trees and no allergies. And then a new sea. From there we... Oh, hold up. Hold up. Oh, I'm sorry. It says no sea. New heaven, new earth, no sea. Hmm. I guess eternity is no day at the beach after all. <laughs> so in the book of Revelation, which remember is a vision. It's a vision given by God to a man named John. God is like an artist. God is painting a picture. God has a lot to teach us in the vision, but he's going to do so through pictures. He's going to do so through symbols. He's trying to give us a feeling down in our gut. And God paints the picture of eternity, eternity on the other side of giving an account for our lives. He paints that picture as a new heaven, a new earth, and no sea. What a strange little detail. As I often do when I'm looking at art, I ask myself, I wonder what it means. Well, this fall, our little family took a trip to the beach. Last year, the girls were two and zero, and so they mostly stayed on the blanket. This year, they're older, more sophisticated. There's actually mud on my outfit from trying to baptize the little one at the first service. They're a little more energetic, a little more outgoing. They loved going to the beach this year. They were very interested in the ocean. They liked to play where the waves would crash into the beach. So I spent a lot of time watching the girls and a lot of time thinking about the sea. And when you think about the sea and you listen to the sea long enough, its constant heaving starts to sound like something. It sounds like the ocean is out there sighing. Wave after wave after wave. Sighing, groaning, waiting for something new, waiting for something better. The other thing I noticed about the sea, the ocean, is that it draws you in and then it tries to pull you in. The heaving, the waves, the sighing, the groaning, you cannot ignore it. It draws you in. It drew my daughters in. But then when those waves hit the shore, there is a powerful force that pulls back out to sea and it tries to take you with it. And that's why my daughters, Indian Cora, thought it was a fun challenge to stay on your feet while the ocean's trying to pull you back in with it. I stood out there with them while they played this game. Because as you know, if you're a little kid, it is a fun challenge. If unsupervised, it can be a very dangerous challenge. 
In our time, just like in John's time, we recognize the danger of the sea. The sea is wild. The sea is untamed. The sea can be chaotic. The sea can be destructive. So the sea actually became an image in the Bible. It became a symbol or an, an image of creation's unwillingness to submit to our Creator. It became an image of rebellion against God. It actually became an image of evil that draws you in and then tries to pull you in. It became an image of people trying to draw you, trying to draw me in, but then pull us in to rebelling against God, rebelling against God's love and God's grace, rebelling against God's truth and walking on God's path. And here in the last chapters of the Bible, God shows to John, who tells us there's a day coming where there will be a new heaven and a new earth and no longer any sea. What is God trying to teach us by painting eternity as a new heaven, a new earth, and no sea. Here we go. Number one, number one, number, number, number. This is how you do it, Noah. Number, number. Number one. God knows what he's doing. What is God trying to teach us? Painting eternity as new heaven, new earth, and no sea. Number one is that God knows what he's doing. God's had a plan all along. Now, you and I live in the middle of the plan, so sometimes it's hard to see what God's doing. Sometimes it's confusing what God's doing. Just like the people before the birth of Jesus wondered, what was God doing? Had God had a senior moment? Had God forgotten about his promise to come? People waiting for the return of Jesus sometimes wonder, what is God doing? Has God had a senior moment? Has God forgotten to come? His promise that he's going to return? Have you ever felt that way, that way of just looking up and asking, is God somewhere out there? In Revelation chapter 21, the words new heaven and new earth are in quotation marks. I wonder why that is. Well, it's because John is quoting the Old Testament book of Isaiah. You're going to need to remember that. He's quoting the Old Testament book of Isaiah. It's not on the final exam, but I'm going to ask you again later in about 10 minutes. He's quoting the Old Testament book of Isaiah. Very good. And how do I know that, you ask? How many hours of theological study did I put into finding that insight? I checked the footnotes that the editors put in the Bible. You too can study the Bible. Well, look what it says in Isaiah 65. In Isaiah chapter 65, God says this, I will create new heavens and a new earth. The former, th former things will not be remembered, nor will they come to mind. But be glad and rejoice forever in what I will create. The sound of weeping and of crying will be heard in it no more. Never again will there be in it an infant who lives but a few days, or a man who does not live out his years. The wolf and the lamb will feed together, the lion will eat straw like the ox, and dust will be the serpent's food. They will neither harm nor destroy on all my holy mountain, says the Lord. So the prophet Isaiah, he's writing seven to, 700 years before the birth of Jesus. So 750 to 800 years before the book of Revelation. He records what God revealed to him, which is this world is not all that there is. Something greater is coming. God is creating a new heaven and a new earth. And this is reason, the Bible says, to rejoice forever forever and in the new heaven and new earth what isaiah tells us is it's free of weeping 
It's free of crying. It's free of the grief brought on by death. It tells us the new heaven and new earth has animals in it. And that those animals live at peace with each other. When the Bible talks about eternity with God, it doesn't picture it as each of us sitting on clouds playing harps, which is a little bit random and sounds a little bit boring. God portrays eternity with him as the best possible version of the life we live now. It's a world of unshakable order and beauty that brings us comfort and awe. It's a place where the dignity and worth of each person is affirmed, where we have purposeful work to engage us, where our relationships are not strained, and in fact, they're an unending source of joy, where we can bask in the presence of God, where His constant closeness gives us the courage and the strength to love as He does. The new heaven and the new earth, which was talked about long before the book of Revelation, is this world as it was meant to be. The new heaven and new earth is the fulfillment of this world, the completion of this world. We're not going to our own private clouds. We're going into the holy city where the only things we know are loving God and loving other people. It's this world, all the good of this world with none of the bad. I mean, in this world, God makes mosaics, right? God has to make beauty out of broken pieces. But in the world that is coming, in the life everlasting, in the new heaven and the new earth, our little mosaic selves and our little mosaic world will be made whole. God will make beauty out of wholeness, not out of brokenness. Isaiah saw this 700 years before the birth of Jesus. And then in the book of the Bible called Revelation, John actually gets to see it. He gets to glimpse the new heaven and the new earth. He gets to see what God's doing. God knows what he's doing. God's had this plan all along, and he's working out the plan. Even in the moments it's hard for you and me to see it, God has a plan, and he's working it out. And you're part of the plan, and I'm part of the plan. We're part of the story. And the story is headed to a new heaven and a new earth and no longer any sea. So what's God trying to teach us when he talks about eternity as a new heaven, a new earth, and no longer any sea? Number two, there's a time coming when number two, there is no more groaning. No more groaning. So number one, God knows what he's doing. Number two, the time is coming where there's no more groaning. Romans chapter 8 says, we know the whole creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth right up to the present time. Not only so, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit grown inwardly as we wait eagerly for our adoption to sonship, the redemption of our bodies. We have all experienced those times in life where we're going through something that doesn't seem to line up with God being loving and all-powerful. We all have those moments where we could ask, if God is loving, if God is all-powerful, why am I going through this? Or why are those people going through that? The Bible does not pretend this doesn't happen. In fact, the Bible says one of the best responses to that situation is to groan. To groan. To acknowledge deeply the disconnect between what is and what could be. Between how the world is and how the world should be. To groan deeply as our way of asking Jesus to usher in the new heavens and the new earth. 
Even creation groans, the Bible says. Even creation sees the disconnect. Even creation writhes in pain at the broken nature of this world. The sea sighs. The sea groans. But there is a day coming where there will be no reason to groan. The day is coming where there will not be a disconnect. The day is coming where the veil will be torn and you could not miss God's existence if you tried. You could not miss God's goodness and God's, God's grace if you tried. You and I are invited to groan deeply in this life, to grieve deeply in this life because we will not groan forever. We will not grieve forever. The day is coming. The day is coming. New heaven New earth, no sea. Number three, what does it mean that God calls eternity a new heaven, a new earth, and no sea? Number three, finally, number three, it means no more rebellion. No more rebellion. Isaiah 17 says, Woe to the many nations that rage. They rage like the raging sea. Woe to the peoples who roar. They roar like the roaring of great waters. So Jesus will usher his followers into the life everlasting, eternity with God. And in the life everlasting, there's no more groaning. And one of the chief reasons for that is that there's no more rebellion, by which I mean no more rebellion against God. No more rebelling against God's heart. No more rebelling against uh, loving what God desires and walking on God's path. And the truth is, it's hard to even wrap our minds around that. Because every part of our lives has been warped in some way by creation's rebellion against God. Our rebellion against God in this life warps every part of our lives. It warps our relationships with God and with other people. It, it warps our work. It warps our self-image. It warps our motivations, it warps our political systems, our economic systems. We've gotten so used to black and white, we can't imagine what a world of color even looks like. And in the life everlasting, there is no rebellion against God. There's no desire to rebel against God. There's no whisper of rebelling against God. All this plunges us back to the sea. The phrase new heaven and new earth is first found in the book of the Bible called Nailed It. So we might be smart to ask ourselves how the sea is portrayed in the book of the Bible called Isaiah. And in fact, in chapter 17 and in other parts of Isaiah, the sea is a symbol of rebelling against God. The sea is an image of people in rebellion against God. The sea is wild. The sea is untamed. The sea is chaotic. The sea is destructive, just like you and I are when we leave God's path to follow our own. We are wild. We are untamed. We are chaotic. We are destructive. The sea is a reminder that creation, people especially, don't submit to God. The sea is a symbol of the harm that you and I do to one another and do to ourselves as we sometimes even laughingly join in creation's mutiny against our good and gracious creator. In fact, if you go read the book of the Bible called Revelation, you'll notice almost every evil figure in the book comes out of the sea, 
lives by the sea, breathes out a sea. The rebellion drew us in. The rebellion drew all of us in. The rebellion started to pull us in. It seemed like fun, but the consequences were serious. The sea, like the sirens, were summoning us to destruction, summoning our very souls. All hope seemed lost, lost, and then here comes Jesus. Jesus the Christ came after us. Jesus, the conqueror of death, pulls us out, pulls us out of the waters of the sea as they tried to close in over our heads. If it had not been for Jesus, if it had not been for Jesus, the sea would have swallowed us up and spit us out and moved on to the next person. But the sea met its match. The sea met its match in the lamb who was slain. The sea met its match in the sacrificial love of Jesus who lived and suffered and died. Never forget this part. He resurrected. He ascended. He sent the Holy Spirit to continue his ministry and message of hope until that moment when he will return to judge the living and the dead and to usher in the life everlasting. And on that day, John says, Something is going to be true that would be crazy and arrogant to say unless God himself revealed it, which is the end of the sea. The end of the sea, that Jesus' victory will be full and it will be final. That in the unfiltered, radiant goodness of God, there will be no rebellion, no whispers of rebellion, no fracturing of relationships, no shoulda, no coulda, no woulda, nothing to separate us from the love of God, nothing to block our view of these simple yet profound words, Jesus loves me, this I know. This I know. I try to sing that to my daughters every night, by which I mean I try to sing Jesus loves me, this I know. No more groaning, no more weeping, no more crying, no more pain. Forever. The most fulfilling life possible in the presence of our God and all those we love whose names are written in the book of life. So as I wrap up my part of the service today, I would ask you to ponder these words deeply. That as a follower of Jesus, or if today or in the future you become a follower of Jesus, as a follower of Jesus, as Gabe and so many others have stood up here before us on different days to proclaim, as a follower of Jesus, my name is written in the Lamb's book of life, and my destiny is the new heaven, the new earth, and no sea. In your victories, in your suffering, as a follower of Christ, your name is written in the Lamb's book of life, and your destiny is the new heaven, the new earth, no sea. Let me invite you to reflect on this question as I wrap up. The question is, how might you receive and give the soul-satisfying hope found in Jesus? How might you receive how might you give the soul-satisfying hope found in Jesus? The truth is, we always need hope. 
But this is one of those seasons where people are especially aware of their need. You may be especially aware of your need for hope this season. I invite you to receive or receive anew the deep, soul-satisfying hope of Jesus. Not just that he came, but that he's coming again. Not just that he can give you a great life on this earth, but that he's taking you to somewhere even greater, a new heaven, a new earth, no sea. And I invite you to not simply receive that kind of hope, but to be an ambassador of that kind of hope. Not to be a jerk about it, but not to keep it to yourself either. To live a life that helps that new heaven, this, this heaven and this earth look a little more like the new heaven and the new earth. A more God-honoring life, a life that loves your neighbor, maybe more than you do right now. Or maybe for you it's just, dealing with the urgency of the question, do I really believe this stuff? Is Jesus trustworthy and true? And if so, what difference should it make in my life? Let's pray together. Let me give you a chance to pray, a chance to talk to God, to listen to God about whatever He's stirring up in your heart or in your mind. Just take a quiet moment for personal prayer. Lord, I thank you that you desire us to have a hopeful future on this earth and into the life everlasting. You know what you're doing. You have a plan. And you desire for us to have, because of that, a hopeful future. Lord, we can lose sight of that because of our big questions about you. Because of the sorrows and sufferings that we or others face. And because of, we deal with the consequences of our own foolishness and shortcomings. So Lord, I pray this Christmas season, this Advent, you will refocus our sights on what you are doing. On the great hope that we have in you. That, Lord, we will be willing to let go of the temporary hopes to find in you a deep and soul-satisfying and eternal hope. Lord, may we not keep it to ourselves, but in ways gentle and respectful, be willing to share that hope in what we say and what we do and how we change our little corner of the world. Lord, some of us are truly in a place of desiring to open ourselves more to you, to allow you to come in and make us new. I pray we would do that. To not live alienated and isolated from you, but live because of Jesus in a deep, loving relationship with you.
We open our lives to you this morning as we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Let's stand. Let's worship together.